Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you speak, and you speak so clearly and powerfully to us through your word. We thank you for the powerful word of the gospel uh, that is um, yeah, that is able to save those who believe. We thank you for this entire semester we've been able to dig deeply into this book and to be able to, from the first verse uh, all the way to the end, be encouraged um, by this wonderful gospel that has been made known to us uh, by your sovereign will, revealed through the coming of your Son, and now put down into scriptures that we can read today. We thank you for the ministry of the apostles in the early church and the faithfulness that they exhibited to preach the gospel regardless of the opposition and persecutions and difficulties that came their way. We thank you for the apostle Paul, that he wrote this word. And we pray now that we'll continue to hear his words, but more importantly, we'll have we'll be able to hear the voice of the Spirit as you speak to us through this passage. We come today with many different burdens and anxieties and distractions. For some of us come tired from a week of study and, and anxious for another week of exams to come. Others have been battling sickness of body or of mind or of heart. For others, um, in our journey of faith, we may be uh, struggling uh, and finding it difficult uh, to believe or to live faithfully. However, we come today, Father, we pray that you would bless us as we sit under your word, as we share in fellowship, as we continue on pressing on trusting in the gospel, continue the work of the gospel and in partnership with the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything okay, Kevin? All right. So as I mentioned, keep your Bibles open to Romans 15 as we get into verse 14 to the end. Um, I always seem to get the last sermon of the series. Uh, the way it's scheduled, I always get it. It's one of the more challenging sermons to preach because you're going to have to wrap everything up. Uh, and usually the end of uh, letters, especially, you get all this stuff that we read today in this chapter. Uh, especially at the end of Romans, uh, it sounds kind of relevant to us. It's about this guy called Paul, who we know as the Apostle. But he's writing about some pretty specific things to this church, about his plans. Uh, And then he starts to greet all these people in this church uh, and all these names that we've not heard before and we likely won't use uh, for our children's names, except for Persis, who's in this passage. Is Persis here today? Anyway, there's a Persis in our church. It was kind of cool to meet my first Persis in life because it's in Romans 16, right? Uh, And we kind of wonder, what's God to do with us? Uh, it, It doesn't seem like... God's word sometimes, doesn't it? This kind of passages. It doesn't seem as divine or as inspired by God. It's the kind of passages in the Bible where you kind of skim past very quickly and quickly want to get on to the next book of the Bible, right? 1 Corinthians. It may be like what you do in the Old Testament as you read through all these you know, names, all these um, genealogies, and you just kind of go past it. It's a bit like that sometimes with this part of the Bible, But this very personal ending to Paul's letter is actually very powerful, more powerful than perhaps we realize on first reading. For when we first get into the middle of Romans 15 here, we we get to hear Paul describe his very unique, very important, God-ordained ministry to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And to be able to understand his ministry, we realize that his ministry is the reason why we Gentiles have the gospel. It began, in a way, with Paul preaching the word to the Gentile Christians 
2,000 years ago. But also, we get to see in his gospel ministry, even though it's unique and, uh, to Paul in many ways, there are things, is, there is a shape of gospel ministry that we can learn from and that we can emulate. That's the first thing. The second thing is, when we look at the greetings, especially of chapter 16, we get to see a beautiful picture of real-life Christians living out real-life Christianity. Right? We see this beautiful picture of gospel partnership that should inspire our gospel partnership today. Right? And finally, as we get to the end, the last three verses of Romans, uh, he completely kind of changes tune and breaks up into this doxology, this, this hymn, this prayer of praise to the glory of God. Because at the end of the day, no matter how much the gospel is about us, the gospel is first and foremost and most gloriously about God, the God of the gospel. And so we'll end there. We'll end by giving God glory as we understand this gospel, as we finish this book of Romans. Now, so getting into chapter 15. Now, Paul has said some very strong things to the Roman church up to this point, right? As we get into Romans 15, 14, we've come a long way, right? For the, the first eight chapters, he's preached the gospel boldly. What is this gospel and why do we need it? And then in chapter 9 to 11, as we saw a few weeks back, he addresses the Jew and Gentile issue. What place do the Jew and Gentiles have in the sovereign, eternal salvation plans of God? And then finally, in verse, the last few weeks, we looked at chapter 12, verse 1, to chapter 15, verse 13, we look at this life of worship that flows out from the gospel. And in this uh, teachings about the life of worship, he's actually given also a lot of rebuke, right? a lot of correction to some of the errors some of the misbehaviors of the Roman Christian church. And then we remember that this guy, Paul, hasn't even met these people yet, right? He's never been to Rome. He's never met most of these Roman Christians, right? You can imagine if I were to write a letter to all of you guys to bring home to your home churches. And in it, I write you, you know, a huge explanation of the gospel that I want you to understand and believe in. That sounds all right. But then I start telling you about all the things that you're doing wrong in your church and rebuking you for it. Or not you, but your church for it. That would seem like a very strange thing to do, isn't it? What right has Paul to do all these things, to say all these things to this church he's never met? Well, Paul has every right to do this. And in fact, it's not just his right to do it, it's his responsibility to do it for the God-given role that was given to him. Verse 15, But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. To be a minister, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus to all the non-Jews in the world. That was his God-given role. Very special, very unique, very important role that we feel the effects of today as Gentile believers. Now look at how Paul describes his ministry. Right, verse 16. It is to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. See, the first thing that Paul describes as ministry is a priestly ministry, Right? He sees himself as a priest in the service of God. Now, what is the role of the priest? In the Old Testament, the priest is like a mediator between sinful humanity, sinful people of God, the Jews, and the holy, sinless God. 
And the priest needed to come to offer sacrifices of bulls and goats to be able to cleanse the sins of the people so that the people could approach God. And Paul is using the same language of himself. But the weird thing that Paul is saying is that rather than offering up bulls and goats, the sacrifice that he's offering to God is the Gentiles. It is the Gentiles that he's offering to God. Now, back in chapter 12, verse 1, the famous verse that we looked at a few weeks back, what did Paul tell the Gentile Christians, the Roman Christians, to do? To offer themselves, right, as a living sacrifice to God. Now, that's true, right? The, the Christians are to offer themselves as a sacrifice to God. But it's also true that they can be an acceptable offering because of this priestly ministry of Paul. Now, what was this priestly ministry? Well, it wasn't to save people from their sins. That is the work of Jesus, the great high priest. Right? If you know your Hebrews, Jesus himself is the high priest, but he's also the perfect sacrifice. He offers himself to God to cleanse us of our sins. No, Paul's priestly ministry is to not save people from their sins, but to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, who does. He is mediating the gospel to the Gentile world by preaching the gospel to them. The Gentiles who were once excluded without God and without hope are being brought into God's family because Paul ministered the gospel to them, the gospel that was given to him by God. So, it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus that brings us to God, but it's the ministry of the apostles, people like Paul, who brings us the gospel that brings us to God. Now, this this ministry was, uh, can you imagine, such a privilege. The Apostle Paul, Apostle to the Gentiles, priestly service to God. This unique role that Paul had is actually a role that we all have as well. Now, Peter, the other Apostle Peter, he mentions this in his letter, right? 1 Peter, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. He says, um, where is it? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the Apostle Paul, writing this letter to Gentiles like us, describes us as a royal priesthood. And what is this royal priesthood to do? That we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to proclaim the gospel. The same ministry that was given to Paul to be in priestly service of the gospel to the Gentiles is the same ministry that God gives us as the royal priesthood. If you look at verse uh, 5 now, uh, in verse, sorry, verse 18, you see that this, this bringing of the gospel is described in verse 18 as bringing Gentiles to obedience. And it reminds us of what he said right at the beginning, right? Turn back to Romans 1, verse 5. I want you to see this. Because it also, in, in, in chapter 16, verse 27, he ends with this same phrase. This faith, uh, obedience of faith, right? In Romans 1, verse 5, Paul talks about how he, has, he and the other apostles have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus' name among all the nations. Right? This obedience of faith, if you can remember back four months ago, has two meanings. The obedience of our faithful response to the gospel is the first meaning, right? Obedience of faith means to respond faithfully by believing in the gospel. 
But the other meaning of obedience of faith means the faithful life that's lived in obedience to the gospel as well. And that is the priestly service that Paul is doing. He is to preach the gospel that people might come to believe in Jesus and live for Jesus. As we've seen over the last few weeks, that is our ministry as well, to be able to preach the gospel so people can believe in Jesus and to live for Jesus. A priestly ministry of Paul that we share. Now, Paul was given great responsibility, wasn't he? And with that, he was given great power, right? It's the reverse of Spider-Man. Spider-Man got it wrong, right? He was given great responsibility first, and then God empowered him to be able to do this ministry. So you look at verse 18. He talks about how by word and deed, and by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, did Paul go about doing this ministry to the Gentiles, you see all these elements of power here. First, by word, right? By the powerful word of the gospel, he, he ministered to the Gentiles. By deed. And here, I think it's by the way he lived his life, right? By, by, by the way that he, he, he walked and shared his life among them. The way that he, he lived out the gospel was a powerful message, pointer to the truth of the gospel. And then in verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the miracles that the apostles did. Now, I want to mention quickly about the power of science and wonders here. Now, it's something that we shouldn't expect today for, for a few reasons. One of them is that these science and wonders, when you look into scriptures, and you look into history, are connected with the first coming of the gospel. So, when the Word became flesh, when Jesus, the Son of God, came, became a man, it came with it authenticating signs, right? all his miraculous works uh, pointed to his divinity. So we have that. Then when the, the gospel was first preached, and, and, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, some of you may be familiar with it, Jesus tells his disciples that beginning in Jerusalem, and then out into Judea, which is like the state, out into Samaria, which is the neighboring state, and to the ends of the world, they will preach the gospel. And so it happens that in the, in the book of Acts, we see the signs and wonders appearing every time the gospel goes to a new place, according to that schedule. So there's kind of like four Pentecosts almost, the first big one in Jerusalem, and these kind of mini ones. But after that, in the rest of the New Testament, you don't see any mention of signs and wonders. Where the, where the power that God is trying to display is found primarily in the gospel. That has been the main message, isn't it, of Romans. For it is the gospel which is the power of God to save those who believe. And then when you flip over to the next page, 1 Corinthians 1 to 4, same message. The, the Jews seek signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ. The Word is all the power that we need because it's the gospel, which is the power of God to save. And so when Paul talks about his ministry as being by the power of the Spirit of God, he isn't just talking about supernatural miracles. I think he's primarily talking about the Word, the Word of the gospel. And certainly for us, that is our ministry, to be preaching powerfully the word of the gospel. Not because we are powerful, but because the gospel is. Now, the third thing we see in this passage about Paul's ministry is that it's a pioneering ministry, right? Pioneering, uh, where he goes out into places that the gospel has not been heard. He's going further and further and further out into the Gentile world, right? He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And he tells us in verse 19 that he's gone from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. So if you're kind of familiar with the Middle East 
and into Europe. Paul's ministry was all around here, almost to Illyricum, right? But Paul, being given the unique role of being an apostle to the Gentile, wants to go further. So as we read on, he wants to go to Rome, which is kind of here off the map, right? Italy. And then he says he wants to go to Spain, which is even further west uh, from this part, right? He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He wants to keep going further and further where the gospel has not yet been known. Now, obviously, this was Paul's special role and specific task given to him by God. He's not saying that his ambition should be the ambition of every believer, that we have to go out you know, into the world where there's not the gospel preached. But then, as a principle, it's actually a good thing, isn't it? To be able to consider that there are many in our world who have heard the gospel, but there are also many who haven't. And that we can be in support of ministries that go to unreached people groups throughout Asia and other parts of the world. But closer to home, I think we can also think of family members and friends, colleagues and classmates that probably would have very little association with the gospel. Now, some of us here, I know, work very hard to try and convince and argue with some of our non-Christian friends, and we have spent hours discussing apologetics and, and all kinds of manner of doctrine, right, to be able to help them come to faith. And that's great that you've invested all that time. But I think if you look around you, there are possibly many people in your family, many people in your classrooms, maybe even the person living in the unit next to you or above you or below you or across the street from you who, who have very little Christian contact. Maybe we could also spend time investing in this pioneering ministry where we reach out to people who have very little chance to hear the gospel, and yet you're there in their lives. You're there around them. Certainly a principle to consider to do more about. Now, in order for Paul to continue his ministry, he wants to enlist the help of these Roman Christians. Right? He wants them to join with him in gospel partnership. So look at verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped, by, uh, to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Now this Paul, he really has no shame, right? He hasn't ever met these guys, and he's even written strong words, even of rebuke, and yet here he is asking for help. And by help here, he means support me financially and materially on my journey onto Spain, right? Uh, how, how can he be so unashamed, right, to ask for help like that? Well, firstly, he's no reason to be ashamed because, firstly, he's the apostle to the Gentiles, right? Uh, even though the Roman Christians haven't met Paul personally, they've all been impacted by his ministry. For the reason the gospel came to them in the first place is that other people were converted from other areas who came and brought the gospel to Rome, people who were converted by Paul's ministry. The Roman Christians owe a great debt to Paul. Secondly, though, and more importantly, the ministry of the gospel is something for all believers to share in. Right, have a look at verse 30. Look at the basis for Paul's appeal for partnership. It is by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. You see, partnership in the work of the gospel is an expression of the unity that we have as those who are all servants 
of the one Lord Jesus. We've heard that last week already, right? There is only one master, and every Christian has Jesus as master. We are all servants, fellow servants. By the fact that we are servants of the one Lord Jesus, do we engage in Christian partnership? It is also by the fact that we are family, by the love that we share in the Holy Spirit. This bond of love that the Spirit binds us together is a familial love, a family love, where we all call on God together as Father. We are all the children of God, engaged in the family business of God. Our Father's business is to save sinners through the gospel. And he says, by, by the love that we share in the Spirit, by the fact we are family, let's engage in the family business of being in gospel partnership. Are you a believer? Would you call yourself a disciple of Jesus? If your answer is yes to those questions, then you are a servant in Jesus' gospel work. Fellow servants with each other. If you are, then you are a child of God engaged in core family business. Gospel partnership isn't some optional extra. Now, as we get into the end of chapter 15 and into chapter 16, this is the point where we go, ooh, um, what's going on here, right? Now, let me do a very quick poll just to engage you a little bit um, so that you're not too falling asleep. I feel you are writing very furiously or there are a few people sleeping. So come on, wake up. All right, so poll time. Who, when they get to passages like this in the Bible, this, this particular passage, who flipped straight past it without reading? Just put your little finger like that in your face so I can see. No one else can see it. Okay? Okay, who won't flip past it so quickly, but they will just sort of quickly skim it? Right, just quickly, then... Ch- okay. Who would study this chapter as if you would study chapter 5 or chapter 8 of Romans? You know those really awesome gospel passages? Who studies this passage in the same way that they study those? Who didn't want to put their finger up? That's half of you. Okay. Now, it's one of those passages, isn't it? I'm not saying that every part of God's word, every verse, every phrase has the same theological weight. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that God gives us the entirety of his word, and they all teach us something. And I think this chapter in particular is very inspiring. Right? It's very inspiring because we see that right from the very beginning, when Christianity was brand new, there were real people really engaging with their faith, really living it out. When the Christian faith was what we would regard as a cult in our circles today, they were new. There were hundreds, at most thousands of them, only a few years after Jesus died. It was opposed and persecuted and criticized as being a cult. Right? We today are kind of part of a majority, right? 2,000 years of Christian history where Christianity is accepted. We're not that weird in the world stage today. But can you imagine for them right at the beginning? And yet there they were, all these particular people believing in Jesus against all the pressures, engaging in gospel partnership against all the opposition and persecution from family and from friends and from society. And in this chapter, we see this beautiful portrait of gospel partnership that really should warm our hearts and inspire our gospel partnership today. The first thing we see in this portrait is that gospel ministry is fundamentally dependent on God. And that's why the first thing that Paul asks for is prayer. Have a look at chapter 15, verse 30. 
I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, we don't need to go into all the specifics of Paul's prayer points. It's, of course, pretty specific to his situation. But what we can note is that Paul knew that God was sovereign over his entire life and ministry, right? Whether he would be kept safe from trouble, whether his ministry uh, would actually be effective, whether his plans would actually come to pass, he knew that all of it was dependent on God, on God's will for it to happen. So he prays, he asks the Roman Christians to pray for him, to pray to God that it will be his will for these things to happen. Now, it's also interesting to see that even as Paul asks for prayer, he is constantly in prayer himself. Did you notice verse 33? It says, May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Right? He's asking them to pray for him, and then he's throwing in this one-line prayer for them, right, in the middle of it all. Now, if you read Paul's letters, he has this habit of in the middle of a sentence, suddenly starts praying to God. Right? It's really weird. Have you ever done that? I mean, you write a letter, or uh, no one writes letters, right? If you type a message uh, to a friend on Messenger or on WhatsApp, do you suddenly break out into a prayer? Has anyone done it before? It's interesting to see. No, right? But, no, okay, don't. No. But it really shows just how, how prayerful Paul really was. It really shows that he really was saturated by, by prayer and, and, and consumed by the fact that he is dependent on God always for anything in life. And it's a real a lesson and a real, I would say even a rebuke to our church. Now, many of you know we've just been through this MVV process where we've determined our church's mission, values, and vision uh, for the following few years. And one of the core values uh, was prayer, or is prayer. Um, And one of our vision elements is to really uh, see prayer becoming a real mark of SLE Church. And it's probably the most aspirational, most ambitious element. doesn't sound like it should be, but it is because of the weakness of our church in being a prayerful church. And, and, and we need to be reminded, as we are reminded here today, that prayer needs to undergird all that we do in ministry, all that we do in life. Now, over, I think about a month ago, we had a prayer meeting for YF, and uh, we went around, I think, uh, I think I was in Sydney for a wedding, uh, and I heard that the attendance was okay, pretty good. But it's, it's, it's something that we should really commit to, Sometimes when you see, oh, next week, prayer meeting is an excuse, right, to go and do something else, right? Bible study is more important, prayer meeting less important. Like where church prayer meetings have often been poorly attended. I'm not sure about your home churches, but church prayer meetings are often a struggle. But I hope that we'll be encouraged to see that one of the foundational elements of gospel partnership, of gospel living, is prayerfulness. Second thing we see. It's about people. Now, in chapter 16, there's so many names. So many names. Uh, and if you do a bit of research through these names, you'll realize that all these people all come from very different walks of life. Firstly, it's pretty easy to see that they're a combination of men and women. And, and in fact, some of the most prominent people in this list are women. Now, maybe in some Christian circles, you would have heard Paul being described as a male chauvinistic pig, right? A patriarchal sexist for some of the things he teaches. 
But among some of his closest friends and his best ministry partners are women. He had an extremely high regard for the partnership of women in the church because we are equals in the work of the ministry. We see in this list that there are young and old, there are Jew and Gentiles. You can tell from their names where they're from. Some of them have slave names. They're probably slaves, and others seem to be royalty. Herodian is probably from the family of Herod, Jewish royalty. Now, in the end of 1 Corinthians, he talks about those who are from the household of Caesar. You know, Roman Emperor Caesar? Some of them became Christians. And then we are told in other places that there's people from the Praetorium Guard, right? The Roman soldiers that he was imprisoned by later on also became Christians. There's this diversity. Young, old, rich, poor, high class, low class. It's an amazing picture of the diversity in gospel partnership. But it's more than just how different they, they were. It's also how personal everything feels. Did you get that sense? Verse 1, right? Our sister Phoebe. Verse 3, my fellow workers, Prisca and Aquila, who risked their necks for me, risked their lives for me. Verse 5, my beloved Eponatus. And on and on through this list, pretty much every single one of this person is, is, is beloved of Paul. They're a, a sister or a brother or a mother, a fellow worker. Gospel partnership isn't cold business. It's not heartless duty. It's beautifully personal, isn't it? A gospel partnership is really an expression of the unity that we have in Christ. Right? The, the unity that exists in such diversity. Sometimes it's hard to see that diversity in our, in our church, isn't it? It's, it's almost all Asian, except for camp. And others who look kind of not Asian because your hair is white, right? But otherwise, we feel so monoculture here. But really, there's actually a, a lot of differences here. They're male and female. They're, okay, not young and old. They're just young. They're people from different places, different personalities, different gifts. But if we cast our eyes a bit further to the morning church, we think about the sistering, neighboring churches around us, the, the body of believers all around the world. We're all fellow workers, in partnership of the gospel, we should be united in, 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 in proclaiming Christ to the world rather than bickering and fighting all the time about things that don't matter. You see, gospel partnership really is a beautiful picture that we're family, engaging in family business, the core family business of preaching the gospel. Let us find more reasons to be united and to be divided. Now, the third thing we see here is patronage, right? Being a patron. Verse six, chapter 16, verse 1, we see that Phoebe has been a patron of many Christian workers and Paul himself. Now, to be a patron is to support something financially and materially, all right? And it happens to be a P word, so it fits the, the list really well. Now, it's exactly what Paul asked for in Romans 15, 24, right, the previous chapter, where in, in verse 24 he says, you know, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while, right? The help there is very definitely materially and financially. They probably want him, them to get him a boat, maybe some people to help bring stuff, supply his needs as he travels on to Spain. Now, if you read the Bible, you'll know that the Bible is very, very open and unapologetic about asking for the people of God to give money and to give possessions. In the Old Testament, the entire tribe of Levi, right, one of the 12 tribes, 
was told you're not to have a land, you're not, not to have an income from the fields. Why? Because the other 11 tribes will pay for you to serve full-time in the temple. Right? The entire Testament, right? That, 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 that laws were in place for the 11 tribes to supply the needs of the Levites who serve God. We get to the New Testament, the same story. New Testament's teaching is that we ought to be giving financially material to the work of the gospel. Now, in our church, I've been here a long time, but as a pastor for almost 10 years. And there were some years where about May, June, we were already about $20,000 behind. Projected means about 40 grand, 50 grand in arrears by the end of the year. And we all freak out a bit, pray a lot, and ask people to give. And amazingly, every year, I think the biggest shortfall we've ever had at the end of the year was around 3000 But other years, we've met budget. And this is with a budget that keeps increasing because the church has kept growing over the last 10 years. So when I, when I see in the bulletin, right, uh, what the figures are, you know, it's there every week, uh, it's, it's a great encouragement, right, if you look at it now. Shortfall 2018, zero. Okay, I think we're in the black by about $1,000 or something. It's really encouraging as a pastor, and it's also very, uh, a lot less worrying as a pastor when budget is being met. And it reminds me of the faithful giving of our church members and, and, and regulars over the years. So that's really like excellent, awesome, very encouraging to see that we are patrons of SLE Church. But by the same token, if we were just to cast our eyes a bit broader around our city and the ministries that are being done in the schools, in the city, among the homeless, and we go a bit further and we think about ministry that's done in other parts of the world, and there are ministry partners, there are gospel workers who are struggling to raise enough support for them to continue doing the work that they're doing. There are missionaries in training ready to go in Brisbane who sometimes take two, three, four years significantly because they can't raise the financial support to be able to go into the field where they're trained and ready to bring the gospel to. So I think looking in-house, very encouraging so many patrons. But looking slightly further, I think there's more we can be doing, isn't there? There is more that we can be sacrificing financially to see the work of the gospel go forward. Now, the fourth thing we see here is that in this chapter, people are putting in. People are putting in. You can't miss the fact that partnership involves putting in hard work, putting in even their very lives. You see that Prisca and Aquila risked their necks for Paul. It's just a euphemism for saying they almost died, right, for Paul. Uh, Andronicus and Junior, like Paul, went to prison for the gospel. Mary worked hard, so did Persis. And Paul kept calling these gospel partners workers in the Lord, right? Workers, right? People who, who, who put in their lives, put in their life energies into serving each other, into partnering in the gospel, and into doing the work of the gospel themselves, you see, gospel partnership isn't something that we simply dabble in. You know, a gospel partnership isn't just coming to church and then throwing a few dollars into the bag or a few notes. It isn't just turning up at church semi-regularly or attending a cell group for Bible study and fellowship when you feel like it. A gospel partnership is more than that. The example that is set by these early believers and by many believers through the generations is that of commitment and hard work and the willingness to sacrifice, get involved. Serving people, serving the church, leadership, it, it costs. 
It'll cost you and it cost me time and energy. It'll also cost us from pursuing other things that are good, but just not as good as being involved in the work of the gospel. So some of you this afternoon will give up time to go to a training or to a Bible study. Others will have to decide whether they want to spend all that money on an overseas holiday. Others will have to think, oh, you know, should I, should I go and uh, join a sporting team, right? Or should I maybe think that takes up too much time? And maybe I can use that time more wisely to reach out to people. There'll be many decisions that we make every day, every month, every year uh, that we'll have to make us think, will we be willing to put in? Put in and put the hard work in. Make sacrifices. Now, when our efforts wane, I like to read passages like this and be inspired by these gospel partners and the sacrifices that they made. Now, finally, we see in this gospel partnership portrait uh, that it's not all pastel colors and bright colors, right, in this painting. There's also a dark element uh, to this portrait. And we see that in verse 17 to 20 in chapter 16. There will always be opposition. Now, I'm not going to go into the details uh, of these four verses. I just want to remind us again that gospel life and gospel ministry will always involve suffering, persecution, and opposition. And that this opposition can also come within the church. Right? For we're told in, chapter seven, in, in, in verse 17 to 20, it is those who are in the church who are creating divisions, that they are those who are obstructing the work of the gospel from the inside. They are the people who claim to be serving Christ, but really they are serving themselves. Now, it's kind of a strange thing, right? Remember last week, the message was, when it comes to believers, we should not judge or despise each other. But remember the context is on areas which are of non-essential, right? Non-gospel, not about clear godliness issues. When it comes to particular opinions or customs or practices, definitely don't judge each other, don't, don't despise each other, but love each other and care for each other. By the same token, or, or contra, uh, in contrast, when it comes to essential issues, when it comes to people who are dividing the church, who are distorting the gospel, who are serving themselves and not Christ, you do have to make judgments. You do have to call them out. You do have to actively avoid them right? And there are other passages which talk about how we should even cast them out if they're unwilling to change their teaching and their way of life. But Paul's final word here on this issue in verse 20 is that at the end of the day, though, we leave it to God. God will deal with them. When God crushes Satan on that last day, he will also crush those who have been serving Satan's purposes. And in a way, this leads beautifully, I guess, to the end of this letter, and this focus on God, right? The final warning leads wonderfully into the final encouragement where Paul finishes this amazing letter with a doxology that I think encapsulates what the entire letter has been about, what the entire letter of Romans has been about. So let's have a look at verse 25 to 27. Let me read it out for us. Uh, verse 25 to 27. Now to God who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, 
Amen. As we read through this uh, entire book, maybe we wonder, how can we carry on in our faith in Jesus Christ? For over and over, when Paul preached the gospel to us, he urged us to keep trusting in Jesus. How do we keep trusting when we have our doubts, when we have our fears, when we are distracted by other, other idols? How do we keep trusting Jesus? How can we press on in worshipful living? How can we keep offering our lives as a living sacrifice to God daily in our relationships with people in the church, in the world, in our, in our, in our actions, in our jobs? How can we keep working hard in gospel partnership? How can we keep putting the family business of God as central and core and, and keep putting in the hard work? How can we do that? Well, Paul's final prayer says that God will strengthen us in our faith in the gospel, in our worshipful response to the gospel, and in our partnership in the gospel. Because... He is the God of the gospel. He is the God who has first given us the gospel, revealing it to us through Jesus. And He is the God who wisely and sovereignly brings about the obedience of faith in our lives and the lives of those we are reaching out to. In our journey of faith, in our ministry of the gospel, God is the God of the gospel. God is the one who will empower and strengthen us. There is no better place to finish Romans than to finish with this, right? About That it is about God. Because as much as the gospel is about our salvation, as much as the gospel calls for our worship, as much as the gospel calls for our partnership in gospel work, the biggest and best thing about the gospel is that it is God's gospel. It is God's gospel. It is He who gives it, He who empowers it all, and so... All glory belongs to God. And so Paul ends, as we will end today, giving all glory to the God of this gospel. Let's pray. Now to you, our heavenly, sovereign, loving Father, to the only wise God, the only sovereign God, be all glory forever and ever through Jesus Christ our Lord. For it is only by you that we know and have the gospel. That is only because you sent your one and only Son to be the Word become flesh. It is only because He lived and died and rose again. It is only because you gave the gospel message to be written down by your disciples. It is only because you raised our apostles who preached this gospel message. It is only because of your grace and mercy that we receive every day. It is only because of your strength that you give us to come to know and believe in the gospel and to live in obedience to that faith. And it's only because of you that we have all these things. And so we give your glory. And now we pray, because you are the God who is able to do all these things, we pray that you'll help us in our gospel ministry partnership, that you'll help us to really put in, that you'll help us to rely on you always in prayer, that you'll always help us to, to really value people, to have real personal connection with each other as we partner together in the gospel work, as we reach out to others. We pray that you'll help us to be strengthened as we meet opposition and persecution that will come our way. We want to pray all these things, asking for your help to help us to keep living faithfully and to keep living fruitfully for you. 
And we pray that it will bring you glory. Glory to your Son. For it's in his name that we pray.